I am an American citizen in birth, in sentiment, in ideas, in hopes, in aspirations, and responsibilities. I am an American citizen. Frederick Douglass. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. Last episode, I started the narrative of the life and times of one of the most iconic abolitionists in history, Frederick Douglass. I ended last week with Douglass becoming the owner and editor of his own newspaper, The North Star. This week, I am continuing my review of Douglass's life, including what happened between him and William Lloyd Garrison, what were his feelings on the Civil War, and what did he do once slavery was outlawed. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. I mentioned Douglas's paper, The North Star, towards the end of last week's episode. The paper, a forceful voice in the cause for abolition, was a passion project of Douglas's, and, though never a financial success, had an impact on his evolution as speaker and political activist. Douglas used the North Star as a way to enter into the public debate in a way he hadn't before, and honed his skills as a writer. Of his time with the North Star, Douglas said, quote, I had an audience to speak to every week, and must say something worth their hearing, or cease to speak altogether, end quote. While always a proponent of the end of slavery, Douglas began to enter the fray on other hot-button political issues, namely, the rights of women. He was an early and consistent supporter of women's suffrage and participated at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, giving a speech in support of the rights of women at the conference. He supplemented his speech with articles in his paper, where he made the argument that, quote, there can be no reason in the world for denying to woman the exercise of the elective franchise, end quote. Providing assistance in maintaining the newspaper was Julia Griffiths, a white woman from Great Britain who came to work for Douglas as editor in 1849. She lived with the Douglas family, which created a rumor mill filled with innuendo and charges of infidelity. While they enjoyed a close relationship, there doesn't appear to be any hard evidence that the two had an affair. As Douglas continued to struggle to support the operating costs of the North Star, he became acquainted with another abolitionist who held vastly different viewpoints than his original mentor, William Lloyd Garrison. Garrett Smith, a wealthy New York abolitionist who helped keep the North Star afloat, backed several social activist causes, such as temperance, and used his wealth to support the issues he believed in. Unlike Garrison, who felt the Constitution in and of itself was a pro-slavery document, Smith believed there was a path to abolition within its text. This idea, and Douglas's belief in it, in part led to the coming fractured relationship between him and Garrison. 
Garrison and his supporters quickly disavowed Douglas as a traitor to the cause and announced their refusal to support any abolitionist newspaper that did not support the belief in the Constitution's innate support of slavery. At an American anti-slavery society meeting in 1852, Douglas was raked over the coals for his change in opinion and shift in tactics. Many prominent abolitionists attacked his character and his newspaper. Douglas, who was already sensitive to insults and criticism, took the rift especially hard. He took to his paper to defend himself, writing, quote, I contend that I have a right to cooperate with anybody, with everybody, for the overthrow of slavery in this country. End quote. With hurt feelings from Douglas and a sense of betrayal from Garrison, the two powerhouse abolitionists parted ways and never managed to reconcile their differences. Douglas continued his participation in national politics and started endorsing various candidates and party platforms, including in 1856 with his endorsement of the Republican Party. Douglas's relationship with the party would be strained and complicated. They failed to move at the pace in which he desired and often left him wanting more. But in taking stock of the options available to him, he felt most inclined to follow the Republicans. As historian David Blight notes, quote, Douglas always had a party for his principles, but in the Republicans, as with the Free Soilers before, he found a party for his hopes. End quote. While on one of many speaking tours, Douglas met John Brown, most famous for his raid at Harper's Ferry. Douglas, who was undergoing another evolution of thought and was becoming more supportive of a violent suppression of slavery, took to Brown and his dedication to the cause. Brown attempted to recruit Douglas into participating in an uprising, but Douglas never followed through. In the aftermath of the raid at Harper's Ferry, Douglas was accused of conspiring with Brown, causing him to flee the country. He only returned after the death of his daughter Annie in 1860, a year after the attack. It was during this time period Douglas also met another woman who became a friend, colleague, and perhaps lover. While the historical record is incomplete, Douglas maintained a nearly 30-year relationship with Audley Assing, a German-American abolitionist who held Douglas in the highest regard. Assing wrote several letters to her sister describing the depth of her admiration and affection for the leader. Douglas never went into many details about his home life, which is odd considering the man wrote three separate memoirs detailing his life as a slave and abolitionist, so the story is unfortunately one-sided. Whatever the truth, Assing, like Julia Griffiths before her, lived in the Douglas home and interacted with the family, even attempting to tutor Douglas's wife, Anna. The 1860s brought a time of great turmoil to the country as the institution of slavery became an ever-present political issue. Southern states, committed to their economic system and touting states' rights, quickly succeeded from the rest of the country in the aftermath of the 1860 presidential election. Douglas, who had begun feeling more militant, welcomed the Civil War, feeling it was only through violence that slavery would once and for all be dealt the final blow. He pushed for black soldiers to participate and receive fair pay, and all three of his sons were somehow involved in the conflict, including sons Charles and Lewis, who were members of the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, an all-black volunteer unit. Allowing blacks to serve in the military took some convincing, and Douglas grew frustrated with Lincoln for his apparent inaction on the issue. 
finally in July of 1862 with the passage of the Second Confiscation and Militia Act, black men were permitted to serve. Douglas threw himself into gathering recruits, using his newspaper as an advertisement of equality through service. The equality, of course, never actually materialized, with black recruits often not getting the same rate of pay as their white counterparts. In August 1863, Douglas had the opportunity to air his grievances to the man in charge, President Abraham Lincoln. From the tale told by Douglas, the conversation between the two powerhouses was amiable, and Lincoln was forthright in acknowledging that while black recruits were not treated great, it was better than not being allowed to serve at all. After meeting with Secretary of War Edward Stanton and Lincoln, Douglas left D.C. under the impression he would be acting as an official recruiter for the Union. As a result, he decided to cease publication of the newspaper that had been his passion for over a decade. No longer called the North Star, having merged with other papers, the Frederick Douglass paper issued its final edition in August 1863. Finally, after five years of bloody conflict and decades of fighting for the liberation of his fellow citizens, the Civil War was over and black freedom was within reach. Douglas had built a career on advocating for the abolition of slavery. Now that it was a reality, what was next? Without missing a beat, Douglas shifted from being an abolitionist to a proponent of Reconstruction and securing black voting rights. In a somewhat odd approach, Douglas was a loud voice for self-reliance for the newly freed slaves and advocated for white America to let the freedmen be, saying, quote, your doing with them is their greatest misfortune, end quote. In Douglas's mind, white America had done more harm than good, and the freedmen only needed the opportunity to make it for themselves. This forceful support of going it alone is odd given Douglas's own experiences, Throughout his life, Douglas was aided by the charity of others, most often white abolitionists. It was white donations that helped support his family while he was on lecture tours, and white contributions that kept his paper afloat for years. So while white America had, by and large, done some atrocious things to their fellow citizens, it is a surprising turn of events that Douglas was not more supportive of a collaborative approach to financial independence for the newly freed men and women. Douglas had a sweeping vision for Reconstruction. According to Douglas biographer David Blight, Douglas, quote, believed the establishment of a new order in the South, especially the protection of the freedmen's rights, had to be done by activist, interventionist federal power, end quote. Unfortunately for Douglas, the man who followed Lincoln into the White House had an entirely different opinion of just how to put the country back together. In a forced meeting with Andrew Johnson, Douglas, leading a delegation of 13 men, implored the president to do right by the black men and women who had supported the Union during the war and now needed their rights guaranteed. Johnson, a slave owner and Southern sympathizer, rebuked Douglas's pleas and provided colonization as the best option for the newly freed black Americans. A race war would ensue, Johnson lectured, if the government tried to enforce any law granting access to the franchise. Not one to back down, Douglas shot back, quote, The very thing your excellency would avoid in the southern states can only be avoided by the very measure that we propose, end quote. Jaded, given his life experiences, Douglas initially opposed the 14th Amendment due to its lack of specificity. 
And just in case you don't have the text of each amendment memorized, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. End quote. To Douglas, the amendment lacked a forceful declaration that as citizens, black Americans should be guaranteed the right to vote. While Section 2 of the 14th Amendment provided a punishment of sorts for any state who denied the vote to any man over the age of 21, Douglas believes southern states would find a way to limit or outright deny the vote to black Americans. And he wasn't the only one who took issue with the text of the amendment. Women's suffrage activists Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony took exception to the inclusion of the word male throughout Section 2. This led to tensions with Douglas, who, while not thrilled with the amendment, was pragmatic and felt strongly that the safety of his fellow citizens were at stake, whereas women, in his estimation, could survive without it. In response to the racially charged attacks against black suffrage by Stanton, Douglas wrote, quote, When women, because they are women, are hunted down in the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and are hung from lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains bashed out upon the pavement, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. End quote. While he had a point, women would have to wait another 40 years to achieve the franchise, with black women waiting in the wings another century. Douglas moved his family to Washington, D.C. after a fire, likely from arson, destroyed his family home in Rochester on June 12, 1872. In his later years, Douglas enjoyed some privileges due to his notoriety, namely a few appointments to federal posts, such as marshal, recorder of deeds, and eventually minister to Haiti. He continued to financially support an ever-growing list of extended family members, including his adult children and brother. He lost his wife, Anna, to a likely stroke in 1882. In a demonstration of how treasured and well-regarded he was, nearly 3,000 people showed up for her funeral to pay their respects. As a result, the ceremony turned more into a tribute to Douglas the man versus the remembrance of his wife. And while Douglas was deeply impacted by the loss of his partner of over 40 years, he never wrote publicly about her or their relationship, save for a brief mention about the start of their relationship. Douglas did not stay a widower long and married just over a year and a half later, on January 24, 1882, to Helen Pitts, a white woman 20 years his junior. This secret marriage, so secret, in fact, Douglas did not disclose his intentions to marry, not even to his children, created a stir Douglas, a well-known fighter for black rights, married a white woman in a time when one of the purported biggest fears of white Southerners was the defiling of quote-unquote pure white women. In the ultimate clapback to the outcry over his marriage, Douglas called upon his own heritage as a man of mixed race, writing, quote, It would seem 
that what the American people object to is not the mixture of the races, but honorable marriage between them, end quote. In his later years, he became a staunch ally against lynching, meeting and mentoring the famed journalist and activist Ida B. Wells. Throughout the South, mob violence took over as a way to suppress black rights, and hundreds of men were hanged in an effort to use fear as a method of control. Perfectly demonstrating the fiery prose for which he became famous, Douglas took his country to task, writing, quote, The sad thing is that in the average American mind, horrors of this character have become so frequent since the slaveholding rebellion that they excited neither shame nor surprise, neither pity for the slain nor indignation for the slayers, end quote. He spent his remaining years as he had his youth, advocating for the freedom and equality of black Americans. Still going out on the lecture circuit despite his advanced age, Douglas was preparing for a speech to the National Council of Women on February 20th, 1895, when he suffered a massive heart attack and passed away. He was 77. It's hard to capture the magnitude and influence a man like Frederick Douglass had. To this day, he remains one of the most noted and cited Americans throughout history. He was not a perfect man, and no one is. However, he was someone who was committed to his ideals and fought as hard as he could for as long as he could. To end the story of Frederick Douglass, I will share a quote that I feel captures his essence. It comes from a speech known as What the Black Man Wants, which was first shared in 1865 at the close of the Civil War and in the immediate aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Quote, I am not asking for sympathy at the hands of abolitionists, sympathy at the hands of any. I think the American people are disposed often to be generous rather than just. I look over this country at the present time and I see educational societies, sanitary commissions, Freedmen's Associations, and the like. All very good. But in regard to the colored people, there is always more that is benevolent, I perceive, than just manifested towards us. What I ask for the Negro is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. End quote. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.